This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour. I'm Cassie Huff with you for the next hour. Coming up, this morning it was announced the state government would be declining Terraman's mine application in the Adelaide Hills. It's been a long-running saga and I'll have some details on how that's been received by farmers in the Adelaide Hills. Also, uh, it might have dropped off the front page news, but there's a renewed call for Australian farmers to support their counterparts in Ukraine by donating grain to raise money for a series of aid groups. Even one tonne of grain donated was a win, um, and every dollar will provide some help. But the war's not front page news now, so it's probably slipped from front of mind for a lot of people, and in particular it was a very challenging harvest for growers as well. But that aside, if anyone does have some grain that they want to donate, the facility's there and the war's continuing. So we'll continue to encourage people to donate um, some grain. More on that soon. But uh, first up today, the Australian Meat Industry Council is warning that staff shortages and big livestock numbers are putting pressure on the processing sector. Meat processing costs are up, like many things, and finding workforce to process the 30% 30% rise in cattle numbers is proving difficult. You might remember the story that was out recently with the MLA suggesting a large increase in the number of cattle from uh, those those big drops when the uh, much of the country was in drought. Now, Tim Ryan is the General Manager of Industry Affairs at the Australian Meat Industry Council and he told Amelia Bernasconi that staff shortages are continuing even though COVID restrictions are easing and visa processing is getting faster. There are some ways businesses can adapt and when there's a market and a profit to be made we'll find ways at the margin where we can make up for the shortage people can run more shifts not fewer to i suppose get animals processed um, with a with a limited workforce but there's a limit to how much you can push people there are other ways where you can do less value adding in, in plant as well and just put more of those people in the critical roles and do more uh primal trade and less subprimaling or retail-ready products. But ultimately, if we're not producing exactly what the customer wants, we're leaving value on the table. And when we are seeing this increased supply of stock, obviously years after the drought, now numbers are really booming, but the labour force struggles. What are we likely to see from the consumer point of view when we're going to buy this meat at the shops or wherever it might be? We're already seeing it at the moment. Australia is a fairly expensive place to process livestock. Uh, We're a good 50% higher than in the United States and more than double the likes of Brazil. So we're starting off a very high cost base to begin with. And over the last two years, that cost base has just inflated. The ABS produce a range of producer price indices. So the producer index for the processing sector, uh, the food processing sector, has increased 17%. Uh, There's a meat processing sub-index as well, and that's increased 23%. Uh, over the last two years. So meat processing has increased by even more. Uh, And we're seeing this at the retail shelf. Uh, Food price inflation is up, particularly for meat products. Uh, And a large part of that is purely absorbing all those costs that are being felt uh, along the supply chain at at the retail shelf. Um, But also, we export more than 70% of what we produce in this country. So that high cost base is making us less and less competitive globally as well. Is that a worry? Yeah, it is. 
It is. We've, we've got a great product and the world wants it and the world will pay for it, but we need to be able to create value still and have a valuable proposition. And I suppose the bigger concern is at the moment, the world economy isn't looking as strong as it was. Uh, if you look at the latest IMF outlook, it's got a, uh, the, the GDP in most of our export markets halved on what it was last year with some of them risking going into outright recession as well. Uh, so when we're trading into this kind of environment uh, and offering a product at a very high price, it does become fairly uh, difficult. And so that value proposition will be harder and harder to make going forward. How long can the red meat industry sustain that with this global uncertainty? I mean, I'd hate to think that our export market was on the rocks, um, given what the world's been through in recent years. How long do you think we can sustain at the current levels and prices and things like that before we need to rethink things? I think on the labour side, uh, it's going to become more of a concern uh, over the next couple of years as those cattle uh, numbers come through. The latest MLA outlook has the cattle kill increasing 30% uh, out to 2025. So we're going to have to find ways that the whole supply chain can accommodate that increase in kill numbers. It's particularly concerning if we hit a dry spell, returning to, to conditions like we saw in 2014 or 2015, when we saw those really big kill numbers. That's going to be concerning um, from a pure labour perspective and how we can actually accommodate that. MLA have the outlook at 6.6 .6 million cattle being processed this year, but have also offered the alternative scenario of 6 million head being processed if these labour conditions in plants continue and that bottleneck really constrains supply. Uh, we'll see those cattle killed uh, in the following years. But to put that shorter uh, forecast uh, into perspective, that would equate to about 200,000 tonnes of beef not being produced in 2023. And to put a value on that, that's about $1.5 billion in farm gate value. Uh, that would be pushed back into later years, potentially uh, in a softer market if all this beef's coming online uh, at the same time. In terms of how the markets are responding, I think they already are in part that, that demand situation globally. At the moment, we've seen cattle prices come back, partly due to supply as well, um, but also that bottleneck at processing. Uh, so I think the markets are already starting to reflect these challenging conditions. And I don't think any of the underlying factors, be it supply or demand, will probably change for the rest of 2023. So how is it a federal government issue to try and support to get more yeah, more people into the country or more people into these positions? Or how do you go about addressing that? That's a lot when you put a dollar figure well, on, isn't it? Yeah, like long, long term, industry is investing and AMIC is pushing for programs to be established to create education and career pathways for young people in Australia to pursue a job in the meat industry. That's a long term solution uh, and saying that's in motion at the moment uh, with a range of programs behind it um, but there are opportunities to improve those but short term the way to accommodate the volatility in supply and the current workforce shortage is really by that visa program so we have seen that backlog uh, reduced but it could be reduced further and those processing times uh, shortened but AMIC also put in our pre-budget submission to the federal government, a few ideas around ways we could cut costs or streamline the process for visa processing um, that might make it a bit more appealing or uh, economically viable to try and bring more people into country uh, as well. 
Tim Ryan, the General Manager of Industry Affairs with the Australian Meat Industry Council, speaking with Amelia Bernasconi. To grain, and there's a renewed call for Australian farmers to support their counterparts in Ukraine by donating grain to raise money for a series of aid groups. The Grain for Ukraine initiative was launched with the support of Grain Producers Australia before harvest, and it's still going. Colin Bettles is the GPA Chief Executive. He says the appeal was born to show solidarity with war-stricken Ukrainians. Well, unfortunately, as we know, uh, when Russia invaded the Ukraine, it was uh, a terrible time, and this was front-page news. And um, at that time as well, for, for grain producers in Australia, there was some real impacts here with grain prices going up and also input prices going up significantly as well. Um, but GPA was contacted by some farmers, in particular a couple in Western Australia, um, Brad Jones and uh, David Ford, who have uh, connections with the Ukraine, having um, been there as part of their Nuffield scholarships. And they had a lot of empathy towards what the people in Ukraine were going through. GPA set up a subcommittee and essentially uh, we took some advice from a couple of uh, military experts who'd been involved in our um, Operation Grain Harvest Assist. And they basically said that any support that we provided would obviously be welcome and uh, it could go towards, um, first of all, providing moral support at the start of the war and letting um, people in the Ukraine know that the world was looking out for them and uh, concerned and taking action about what they were going through. And secondly, that the strategy would be it was OK to build a, a war chest to help provide long-term um, recovery support. And so that's what we focused on, essentially, was setting up a facility um, where farmers could donate grain um, if they wanted to show that support for people in the Ukraine in rural communities and other farmers who are going through this terrible time. And now that we are essentially at the end of harvest, Colin, uh, how's it gone? How much grain have you had donated and, and what's that going to mean in terms of your contribution to Ukraine from a financial perspective? Well, in comparison to the size of the crop, 62 million tonnes, we haven't reached anywhere near that. But the main thing is we set up a facility. So, I mean, even one tonne of grain donated was a win um, and every dollar will provide some help. But the war's not front-page news now, so it's probably slipped from front of mind for a lot of people. And in particular, it was a very challenging harvest for growers as well and um, also carried a lot of risk into this harvest with high input costs. But that aside, if anyone does have some grain that they want to donate, the facility there and the war's continuing, so we'll continue to encourage people to donate um, some grain um, from their harvest if they feel generous to do that to help support people in the Ukraine who are going through this terrible ordeal. Okay, so it's absolutely ongoing, and for the foreseeable future, farmers who've got grain sitting there, warehoused, that they can transfer that to GPA? That's exactly right. We've got an account in the National Grower Register, and the number is one five. That's 1500-4442. And look, different bulk grain handlers have different ways of growers being able to nominate to transfer grain into that account. Um, In WA, there's the CBH system where there's a GPA account number, which is 40564635. But for growers in Victoria, for example, uh, Grain Corp also, there's an account, GPA account there, and people can transfer as well if you're in South Australia. Uh, through Viterra as well by quoting the GPA account number. And we also encourage bulk handlers and anyone else in agribusiness as well to get behind this and support growers at this time where they're looking at selling some of the grain from last year's harvest to support this um, appeal. 
when the grain is sold and the money does come in to GPA, what specific charities is it actually going to be passed on to? That's a good question. Um, as always, um, you, the committee did make a decision before last harvest, the subcommittee, uh, that when the grain was sold that the money would be donated to four different charities. So that's the UN Crisis Relief Ukraine Humanitarian Fund, uh, World Vision Ukraine Appeal, World to Rebuild Rural Ukraine Program and Oxfam International. And the main thing there was that we wanted um, to obviously minimise overhead costs and make sure that as much of that support um, hit the ground and provided support to those people who are going through this terrible time. Going back to those who were involved in in starting this campaign and those who've supported it since, Colin, do you think there was a, a feeling of, you know, it's pretty tough farming in, in the best of times, let alone trying to, to farm in a, in a literal war zone? Yeah, well, I suppose it's a bit different. We, we went through some severe rain and flooding this harvest and, um, you know, you're waiting for the, um, the ground to dry up and the sun eventually came out. But, you know, waiting for the bombs and the bullets to stop would be something we can't imagine. So these people uh, on our committee, David and Brad in particular, spent time in Ukraine and they know people and we spoke to some of those people as well and understood their experiences and, you know, Australian farmers are also notorious or the Australian public are very notorious and well known for being generous in their support for Australian farmers when they're going through tough times. So with a big harvest, it was an opportunity to give a little back should people choose to. Colin Battles, the Chief Executive of Grain Producers Australia, speaking with Angus Verley there. And as they said, there is still a capacity to donate grain if you are still reaping or perhaps you've got some stored uh, in, in silos on your on your property. Perhaps you might consider donating there. It's, uh, it's certainly um, something that has had support from the industry. As was mentioned, Grain Producers Australia has been uh, largely driving this. It is 18 minutes past 12. Don't miss the Queen of Country Pop, Shania Twain, on Saturday Night Country. Becky chats with Shania about her first album in five years, Waking Up Dreaming. And we find out how she makes her songwriting so relatable. A little bit of sense of humour to, you know, balance out the sass. Never hurt. <laughs> Shania Twain on Saturday Night Country with Becky Cole. Saturday night from 10 on ABC Radio and ABC Country. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, we'll continue chatting with grain growers because you may be aware that the Grains Research and Development Corporation held their annual Southern Update in Adelaide this week. There were many topics there and uh, one that caught the attention of Lamaru farmer Lou Floor was... uh, Looking at farmers coming together to tackle climate change, Lou Floor was among the group and says that uh, the event highlighted the way grain growers can become sustainable farmers. It's coming hard and fast about how we as grain growers need to probably lift our game in in showing and proving that we are sustainable farmers and, um, and how we do that in our businesses, which is probably not being done that well at the moment. Um, what our carbon footprint's going to be going forward and how we can look at ways of reducing that. I sat in on some conversations about deep placement of nutrition and picked up a few little hints about our potassium, potential deficiency in potassium on our property, um, and as well as looking at some newer novel weed control options for us 
as we try to get on top of our weed burdens from the 2022 harvest. What are some things that you see uh, yourself um, and others changing? It, well, to be honest, it, it's not so much that we aren't sustainable. We, I think, I think particularly for the low rainfall, we are particularly sustainable. It's just been able to prove that um, moving forward in our, you know, to the consumer. So it's showing our chemical records. It's showing our responsible fertilizer usage on properties. In terms of our actual carbon footprint for our low rainfall growers, we, we're actually it is relatively small. But yeah, there's always ways we can improve that. Um, one thing Andy Bath spoke about in his session this morning was the sustainability accreditation that we can get for our grain production. That is worth $5 a tonne to us. But is that enough at the moment to, to get growers to do the enormous amount of paperwork that goes with that? So it's not so much that we, we aren't sustainable. It's just getting that message out to consumers that we actually are. It is uh, a hard juggling act to sort of deal with the worsening um, climate crisis and also sort of have production levels consistent. Um, is are there there have you faced some challenges on this front? And are there there some things that that you'd like to see done in terms of on farm and how things have changed from a yeah from a warming climate? We we have seen some small changes where our crops tend to be ripen earlier, tends to be a little bit warmer, so we're tending to be harvesting earlier. And we've also noticed changes with the break of the season as well, sort of um, it's shifting later and later. So we're always looking at ways of trying to still get our crops in on time, even in the event that we, we don't have that seasonal break. Is there a feeling or were you able to pick up a, a feeling in the room with the others in the industry having to adapt and, and change given the, the climate crisis and growing population? I think for a long time the feeling hasn't been there and I really felt it was different this year. I think there are certainly financial incentives now for growers to, to prove their sustainability on farm and it has been a slow build. We have been hearing that consumers and, and more broadly as, as well, we, we need to be more sustainable. But I, I really feel like there's a shift in the room and there's a change in the waters that actually this is something really important that we as an industry need to, yeah, need to, need to show what we're doing. And, and I think in the past, agriculture hasn't done a very good job at communicating our sustainability story. We're very fact-based. We're not really that into storytelling. And I, I think... Um, Yes, we have a climate crisis, but we've also got a growing world population. So we've got to feed that population and we, when we need to do it sustainably. And is organic um, production something that you would consider? Is that is that something that you've thought about? Yes, it's it, it's not widely adopted in, in my region, which is a low rainfall area. So we need to maintain and, and store every drop of rainfall that we get. And every tillage practice that is done on that land loses moisture. So it, it's not something that's widely adopted. We also saw from Andy Barr's presentation this morning that there is a fairly substantial drop-off, sort of 30 to 40% if we shift to that organic farming practice. So mm. it's not something that we will consider. We, we are very um, keen to, to preserve as much moisture in our, in our profile and convert it to grain as efficiently as we can. And we don't really see organics having a fit in that for us. Um, do you think that if they're, like in Europe, if there was more funding towards improving organic production, um, do you think that would be a good thing? 
I am skeptical about that because of the production drop that you get with the organic production system. It makes me a bit nervous seeing those those new um, 2030 goals that are happening in, in in Europe. It makes me a little bit nervous about um, feeding that 9.8 billion world population. It's a little bit it's a little bit out of whack for me. Lamaru farmer Lou Floor speaking with Anisha Pilicetti and Pilaricetti. And uh, we'll have more from the GRDC update. There's obviously so many topics uh, at that program. And one of the main focuses was on the disease pressure from last year and how that is going to carry over into next year. So we'll look at that t- tomorrow. And I'd be interested to know, are there things that you're doing to uh, perhaps deal with the diseases from last year, whether there's a green bridge at your place or um, you've been pretty active with your sprays, uh, trying to make sure there isn't a green bridge or or carryover, but there could still be some issues. So uh, we'll look at that in the next couple of days. But that was a topic that was quite widely canvassed at the Grange Research and Development Corporation's annual event that has been in Adelaide for the last two days. But we'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now to find out what the latest is in this run of warm weather we've been experiencing. I'm joined by senior forecaster Jenny Horvat. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So she's a warm one again. How are things looking? Yeah, look, it is, especially for the central and eastern parts of the state. We do have a bit of a trough of low pressure moving across from the west, so that is taking the, the edge off some of those temperatures out there, especially on the western coast. Looks like our winds have now shifted southwesterly at Sejuna as well. We saw quite a lot of low cloud following that change out on those far western coasts this morning, but that's mostly really contracted to the very far coast and, and offshore there. So a little bit of moisture with that change, bringing a bit of cloud and a bit of haze along those western coasts, but we're not expecting any significant um, precipitation as that moves through. Also saw a little bit of fog around this morning around sort of Kangaroo Island and the and the lower southeast, but that all lifted very quickly. It was pretty isolated, but yeah, we do have those temperatures on the rise today and we are looking at some very hot temperatures inland um, as well as sort of further south as well. It was just that bit of warmth, but with this change moving through, it's pretty slow moving, but it's making it way across today and we should expect it to move more broadly across the state on Friday so just taking an edge off those temperatures as it moves across the state probably not going to make it quite into the far northwest I'm sorry northeast on Friday still remaining very hot up there and even as it sort of tracks up to the northeast on Saturday and out into Queensland and NT on Sunday still going to be remaining very hot across the the north um, nevertheless but further south we'll have that next high pressure system coming in and looking at maintaining some more subtly air so keeping a bit of a lid on those temperatures at least for the for the weekend and as we head into next week we will see our wind starting to shift back around easterly and northeasterly by the end of the week so seeing those temperatures returning to very hot mostly pretty much throughout by next Wednesday so a um, little bit of a, a mixed bag coming up so yeah a little bit hot today with that trough coming across from the from the west we're not going to really see too much rainfall as I said as that moves across again we could see a little bit around as that comes across sort of the coastal 
western coasts on Friday, but we're not expecting any real significant rain as that moves through over the weekend. Maybe um, more broadly across the south where it's a little bit cloudy, we could see a little bit of light shower activity on the Saturday there, most likely in the in the morning. And again on Sunday, probably seeing a little bit of cloud and maybe a little bit of precipitation around the southeast on the Sunday morning and maybe about some of our, our western coasts. Um, next week though, again not too much. There could be a little bit of weather that sneaks in from the far west on Monday. But not expecting too much with that one. That's a little bit more of a, a watch this space, but um, it's really um, a return to those hot temperatures as we head towards the, the middle to late part of next week because we'll still maintain that heat in the north. And as those winds shift back to the northerly, we'll... Um, pick those the, those temperatures back up as we head to midweek there Cassie so really for our rainfall we aren't expecting very much generally less than a, a couple of millimetres across the southern agricultural area and western coast and maybe in the far west on Monday but really I wouldn't be counting on that I'd still be watering the garden there Cassie it's a, pretty much a bit of a dry period coming up for the next week. That's a good reminder because mine is looking a little bit sad. My, yeah, my it's garden. a little bit. It's a little bit like that because you have a little bit of rain and you think, "Oh, that's yeah, all right, rain that day." But then the tea comes and it's like it didn't rain at all. Oh, I didn't think you could kill the um, seaside daisy, but I think I might have. <laughs> anyway, yeah, thanks, thanks for that, Jenny. No worries. Jenny Horvat from the Bureau of Meteorology there in the far west of New South Wales. The upper western will be sunny tomorrow. Winds picking up through the middle of the day. Overnight temperatures falling to between 18 to 22 degrees. But the daytime temperatures are going to get pretty warm, getting up to 40 degrees. The lower western will be mostly sunny. Overnight is going to get down to 16 to 21 degrees. But again, pretty warm. Day getting up to 40 in the lower western as well. More to come on the country hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's great to have your company today. I am Cassie Huff and uh, after more than 12 years, the state government has made a decision on the fate of the Terraman Bird in Hand gold mine at Woodside in the Adelaide Hills. My department thought on balance that they could operate the mine, but the subjective aspects around the impacts on the pristine wine growing area around it were a matter that could not be assessed by the department and it would be assessed by me and I've made the judgment that it is not appropriate. Local landholders have long opposed the project and we'll hear from one of them about that decision that has been made by the state government today soon. Also, the days are numbered for the final 30 feral pigs on Kangaroo Island. I'll have details on the final thrust of the eradication plan that's in place there. But first to news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. And uh, as we have been hearing, the state government has indeed rejected a bid by the company Terramin to develop an underground gold mine at Woodside in the Adelaide Hills. The application has been on the drawing board for years and a Department of Mining and Energy examination found that all statutory obligations would have been met. The final decision rested with the Minister Tom Kutsantonis, who says potential risks to surrounding wineries and the region were too big. 
The state government says it will spend $11.6 million over five years to support refugees and other temporary migrants with disabilities. People on certain temporary visas are not eligible for support through the NDIS, including refugees who fled places like Ukraine and Syria. The Premier Peter Malinowskis says the funding will help provide things like mobility equipment and therapeutic support. And a bill that would create an Aboriginal voice to Parliament in South Australia has been introduced in the Legislative Council. The introduction was welcomed with applause from Aboriginal people and their supporters who packed the Upper House's public gallery to witness the event. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman. There now, uh, as we've been saying, the South Australian government has rejected a bid by company Terraman to develop an underground gold mine at Woodside in the Adelaide Hills. Now, this has been dragging on for a long time. It's been uh, at least seven years. Uh, I mean, it's been going since 2009, but um, seven years uh, on the drawing board and uh, a Department of Mining and Energy examination did find that all the statutory obligations had been met. So, uh, David Bevan this morning caught up with the Mining Minister Tom Coutsantonis to explain his thinking around why he rejected the mine's application. They made an application uh, which was vigorously assessed by the Department of Energy and Mining. I considered all the relevant factors and um, I could not in all good conscience approve this mine. This mine is in between Petaluma Winery and Burdenham Winery and alongside the Art Wine Winery in Adelaide Hills. Uh, while uh, Terramen were adamant that they could uh, coexist uh, alongside three wineries uh, in a region which is renowned for its tourism offerings and its uh, clean green credentials. I felt that controlled explosions underground and the increased heavy traffic uh, along roads alongside these wineries would have made the amenity of the area unsustainable for the offerings that established businesses had in the area. So as difficult it is for someone like me to refuse uh, a mine its licence, I had to weigh this up in the interests of all South Australians and especially the Adelaide Hills, and that's the decision I've taken. When we spoke to you before the election and we asked you about Burdenham, what would you do, my memory, and we're going back almost a year, you know, my memory is you said, well, it'll be based on the science. Mm. So are you saying you've got scientific reports saying that this will damage the businesses surrounding it? Well, these are all subjective uh, assessments made by a minister. Now, I'm required under the Act to consider a number of things. And on balance, my view... Uh, is that I don't believe that it would be appropriate to have a mine of this type alongside these wineries. So have you got a scientific report showing there will be adverse environmental outcomes if the mine goes ahead? Well, it depends on what you mean by environmental. I mean, in terms of the aquifer and the impacts of the aquifer, there are risks. They were proposing a novel approach, which had not been tried before, I think, in Australia. The department felt that it's been peer-reviewed and potentially could be on the balance achievable. But if it was a catastrophic failure, we would see bore levels drop throughout the region. Now, remembering there are a lot of existing viticulture in the area that rely on underground aquifers and water. And we'd have to then consider whether or not these bores would be impacted. There would be a lot of impacts in terms of visual amenity, in my opinion and impacts in terms of the 
um, credentials of the region being a wine producer. I mean, remember, this is alongside Petaluma and Bird and Hand wineries. Mm-hmm. So that's a decision I've taken, and I stand by it, David. What was the recommendation from your department? My department thought on balance that they could operate the mine, but the subjective aspects around the impacts on the the pristine wine growing area around it were a matter that could not be assessed by the department and it would be assessed by me, and I've made the judgment that it is not appropriate. Tom Kutzentone as Minister for Mining, speaking to David Bevan. Jim Franklin McAvoy lives about 2.5 kilometres from the proposed mine site and is the chair of the Inverbracky Creek catchment. Good afternoon. You there, Jim? I'm here. Hi, Jim. So uh, when you heard that news this morning, how did you feel? It was a sense of absolute relief. Um, this has been a long battle. Um, there was a previous um, company that started in about 2004 um, with exploration drilling and all that. Um, I mean, the mine, the air had been mined in the 1870s and 1930s and every company they ever tried went broke within a short space of time because of the sheer amount of water in the aquifer. So it's only something that's always hanging over your head, I guess. Um, and so when the previous company started poking around in 04 and then um, the current proponent took over um, more recently, you know, it was sort of, well, surely it can't possibly get up, but um, the way the Mining Act is um, to, to a large extent it's just a matter of really ticking boxes saying you've done this saying you've modeled that um, you know there's not it's actually potentially the department can okay a mine simply because uh, it's it's been through the process which is something we've heard a lot of for the last 14 years of the process um, and and ultimately though some of those those soft things you can't actually measure so Impact on tourism, you can't actually make a, a prediction on that other than you can sit there and think, well, if you've got a mine operating between three big tourism places and it's making noise and dust and traffic, it's probably going to annoy the tourists who are going to go to their socials and say, oh, I don't want to go back to that winery because, you know, the neighbours are annoying. Um, so some of those things are hard to measure, but there's also a lot of risk with this, um, with the aquifer management. Um, you're in an area of high rainfall, and we've just had in the last uh, couple of weeks, we had a couple of days of quite heavy thunderstorms, you know, 40, 45 mils in 15 minutes. And the first thing that people say when we're talking about, gee, that was a bit of a thunderstorm. Go, gee, imagine if the mine was here and all they got on the, you know, mullet heap and all that, you know, they'd be flooding. Um which probably leads to the other point. This has been kind of a, a, a mental and emotional thing hanging over everyone's head for a long time. And when we sort of got news last week that there was an announcement was going to be very soon, uh, you know, people, a lot of people were clearly getting quite worried because we assume that mines don't get knocked back. So we have a mine here in, you know, six or 12 months. When I rang people this morning to say, oh, I've just got, you know, just heard, don't say too much, but it's been knocked back. Uh, I had some... One well-known guy around here, he's a lovely guy, uh, he just cried. He's doing oh, such relief. So it's taken a real toll on people just having this threat hanging over our head. Um, because the impact locally, both on water and pollution runoff from Mullock, but it's also the risk to Adelaide's watershed. We, um, you know, we, we, our water goes into the Onca, it goes to Adelaide. At the moment with the conditions in the Murray um Adelaide's getting most a lot of its water from its hills catchment. Um, and so you've got some sort of, you know, heavy metal waste going into the water that potentially impacts an entire city. Um, and that's been something we've pushed very hard. And so that Tom, every time I've been to Tom, because Tom's been the mining minister for this whole process, except for the 
four years when he had the Liberals in. Uh, and he's always said, you know, Adelaide's watershed was always a big deal for him. You know, it's, it's a big picture problem here. And you mentioned it in there. I'm struggling to think of a mine that has been rejected. So was there very much a sense of gritting your teeth for for the this outcome that, that seemed almost like a fait accompli? Particularly given yeah, yeah. that suppose that the, the um, department had said this mine could work uh, given the, the restrictions that have been put placed on it. Yeah, well, we weren't privy to what the restrictions were other than um, I guess once it goes beyond the community consultative stage, we don't really get feedback on what's happening. Um, our group had funded some our own hydrological reports and some traffic reports and other reports as well because we were not, you know, we want to have a, a, another viewpoint. Um, the hydrology that we had done was it was very high risk. Um, you know, you're in a fractured rock aquifer. If you don't know where these fractures are, you can refracture with blasting. Um, you know, the abundance states are proposing to basically concrete the whole tunnel down there. Once you're actually in there underground, um, you don't know what's happening. I mean, you put down a bore here, which is heavy restrictions on now, and you never quite know what you're going to get. Um, so, you know, you can't actually measure or estimate what's down there unless you you know, dug a hole every 10 metres or something. Um, it's dealing with a lot of unknowns. And I think for the minister, it would have been actually hard for him to approve this and then sleep at night knowing that there's a risk that was going to happen. You know, it's a, a you know, there's always seismic activity around here. A whole lot of things could have gone wrong for a very, very small mine. I mean, actual production was, was a quarter of a million ounces. I've got that in front of me at the moment. It's actually a very small mine for a very short process. You're doing an awful lot of, digging and poking and piling up mullock for a very short investment time. And we obviously go, well, there's other, it's probably other sort of, you know, gold veins they might explore once they're down there. But I'd say there was an awful lot of inconvenience and work and, and infrastructure for something very short-lived. Um, and then once they finished, they were going to, let's say, flood the shafts. Well, that's an awful lot of, you know, an awful lot of space to have to, water down basically um, and the other thing was the sheer, to get down there to get the depth they need there's a huge amount of overburdened mullet which was going to be piled up out of most people's line of sight but that's very dusty rock sitting on the surface over about five or ten hectares that actually creates a whole dust problem for the you know people in the next valley so there are a lot of issues here in an area with lots of other farms close to towns you know, I can absolutely see why um, the minister goes, this is too risky. And ultimately, scientifically, you can, I mean, I'm a scientist as well. There are some decisions you make with great science to support something, you go, but the risk is so great, you can't do that. Um, and that's what the outcome has been. What does this decision mean for landholders? As you said, you've had this hanging over your head for more than 10 years. What, yes. what does it mean now? Uh, for us locally, uh, you know, to talk to a couple of people this morning, they're going, oh, I'm going to be able to go and actually, you know, do some more things, plant some more vines or plant some more fruit trees. Um, and, you know, some people have been deferring investment because of that. Certainly some of the touristy type people, uh, you know, I don't totally follow how they do things. I'm, a, I'm an ag guy, not a tourist guy, but I know some of those people have been holding off some potential opportunities um, because they're just concerned our tourists going to go past a fully working mine and a pile of mullock. Um, I think bigger picture, though, you know, there's increasingly seeing this concern for the mining industry trying to, you know, push mines closer and closer to ag areas and, you know, 
uh, you know, civilization, I guess. Um, and I'm hoping this gives a bit of hope to, you know, some of those producers on the York Peninsula in the southeast who are you know, dealing with mining companies who, um, you know, a lot of these mining companies have a, a very poor view of farmers, are quite intimidatory and, and those things. They also perceive farmers being a bit slow or whatever. Well, we had a big problem with this current company has been they give us reports and going, this is so simplified, it makes no sense. You know, we're all pretty educated here. You know, we want some hard, concrete reports and evidence, um, and it really shows what a community can do. We've got a range of different ag production systems here, but, you know, pretty much everyone gets in and, you know, goes to the meetings and says their bit. Um, so, you know, I think it really shows that a community that's faced with threat of adversity or adversity directly can work together, you know, be intelligent and actually speak to the depart relevant departments and say, no, we are concerned about this for these reasons and, you know, some of you got ministers actually listen to you. So I'm hoping this actually gives um, those other producers in difficult situations uh, perhaps a bit of inspiration that you can actually work together have a you know intelligent non-emotional argument and say this whatever the topic is is a major concern for us we need to get to the bottom of it and be convinced that whatever the topic is is safe so i guess it's big picture um stuff but locally i mean we had the bushfire through here three years ago and virtually everything got burnt um and yeah that was a real blow um for us but i guess perhaps because we had this group going about the mine we probably got up a bit faster than we might have otherwise. And I, the minister did go to um, a lot of uh, effort to say that this is very much specific to the, uh, the Terraman project and it is, is is not relevant to anything further afield. But this is probably outside of what you would know about. But are, could there be grounds for appeal? Are you are there any is – there, is, there, is this done and dusted? Do you believe you are uh, – this mine application is, is finalised? Uh, I'd like to think so. I'd like to not go through this process again. Uh, I, I'm not sure how that exactly works. Um, you know, I'm not sure whether because the ministers said no, it's it's definitely no. I mean, so I said we've, we've always been concerned there's going to be, you know, mining around here. I mean, 20 years ago, they were trying to rework the some of the tailings up at Mount Torrens and that fell through. So if you're in an area where there are minerals around, I guess it's always a risk. Um Big picture-wise, it would be nice to have some sort of a ban on mining in Adelaide's watershed. And I know um, our local MP and a couple of the others there have been trying to push for that. So that would be a, a really great outcome um, because, you know, you know, especially when you're going to this sort of depth, um, the mine really is is a risk to the to the aquifer. Well, as you said, there's a lot of relief and um, some relatively happy landholders. I'm sure it has been a blow for people who were counting on the jobs and whatnot from this mine. So uh, there will be further coverage as to what Terraman has made of this decision. But thank you for coming on the program today. I think with the jobs, though, uh, and I look a few guys here do, or people working in the mines, and I've talked to them about, you know, how would you feel about working? A lot of them have gone, they'd rather work at the bigger mines where you've got more assurity of longer-term work. So... Um, and that's been something I've been concerned about for a lot of my, well, quite a few mates who work in the mines, and not a lot were planning to work here on the, but yeah, it was convenient, but it was less assured they'd rather work somewhere, you know, bigger, <laughs> basically where you, you knew that it was there for the long term. I'm sure there'll be some, um, yeah, some cheers and some um, celebratory uh, gatherings, right. I guess, uh, in your area with your group that has been opposed to, to this mine. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for your interest.
Jim Franklin McAvoy from Woodside there. He's the chair of the Inverbracky Creek Catchment Group. They were a group of local producers and residents who were opposed to the mining plan. Uh, we will need to speak with um, Terraman as well to, to see how they're going to proceed going forward as to whether or not this is final, final, a full stop on this or whether there are um, other avenues that they can perhaps look at. So... Keep listening to ABC Local Radio. There will be more coverage on this. It is 13 minutes to one. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. And we'll stay with the government. So the SEA government uh, will put a final $191,000 towards the eradication of feral pigs on Kangaroo Island. Uh, it's, uh, there's not many left. Overall, about $4.6 million has been spent on this project. And it's seen a number of methods, yeah, including thermal imaging used to cull the feral pigs on the island. Fer- um, Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven can explain what this money, this final money, is for. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. The state government is putting up some more money this year to polish off the the final pigs on Kangaroo Island. What is happening this year when it comes to tackling the feral pigs? That, that's right. It's uh, an addition to two hundred, almost two hundred thousand dollar investment because the eradication of the feral pigs on Kangaroo Island has been a real success story. Uh, the damage prior to the bushfires from feral pigs was estimated to be about a million dollars a year, uh, and that included things like damage to pastures and grain, potato crops, fence lines and dams, that kind of thing. But of course, uh, there was also the damage that they did in terms of eating native plants and frogs, fish, reptiles, birds, uh, and destroying habitats and ecosystems. So the feral pigs were a real problem on Kangaroo Island. And once, of course, the bushfires uh, killed such a large number of them, more than half, there was an opportunity, it was quite quite unique, to be able to finish off the job and, and eradicate them completely. So the numbers are uh, below 30 now, and this additional funding will enable us to um, really, I guess, finish the job. Uh, it will have the demonstration of proof of freedom of feral pigs through some monitoring cameras and collection of water samples, uh, which are analysed to detect even the most you know, tiny traces of feral pig DNA. So a really comprehensive program uh, that's coming to its end, uh, but this extra funding will mean that it is complete and uh, should mean the end of feral pigs on Kangaroo Island. Which would be such a, a great outcome. It is quite a lot of money, though, for 30 pigs. You're looking at over $6,000 per pig. Does, does there need to be that much? So it's not simply about getting rid of those last uh, few pigs. It's about what is really important, which is is showing that proof of freedom. So that's where the additional money will go in the main. So those collection of samples, the analysis, um, providing a warning system. Uh, so that in the event of any remaining feral pigs actually you know, still being there or any new incursions, uh, that there is the opportunity to have that warning system in place. So that's really important in terms of keeping Kangaroo Island free of feral pigs going forward. You've mentioned the benefits to agriculture, the the huge costs that that feral pigs have on the natural environment as well as on agricultural production and things like that. But beyond that, what is the benefit to South Australia of having Kangaroo Island feral pig free? Well, I think it really does... Um, to, you know, to lead into the whole image of Kangaroo Island. Uh, you know, it's clean, it's green. We've got rid of um, feral deer and feral goats on Kangaroo Island, now getting rid of feral pigs as well. So it's really part of that story um, of what a wonderful environment Kangaroo Island is uh, and what a wonderful place to visit. 
It was a, an opportunity following the bushfires to get on top of these pig numbers. Are there any plans, though, to roll out a program like this to deal with the feral pigs on the mainland? You obviously don't have the confined borders and the extra help that, when it came to finding the pigs that the fires offered, but is there any push to do that? It is a very different scenario on the mainland uh, when it comes to, in fact, many different kinds of feral animals on the mainland. Uh, actual eradication uh, by most people's views is not possible. So you're right that this was a really unique opportunity. The bushfires killed more than half of the feral pigs that were on KI uh, and then through this funding, which was uh, 4.6 million to date, and uh, now we're, we're adding an additional 200,000 to finish it off. A real opportunity to get rid of the problem on Kangaroo Island to the benefit of the environment, to the benefit of agriculture and horticulture, uh, and also, of course, for tourism. Well, it is definitely a win for Kangaroo Island uh, to see it rid of these feral animals. Hopefully, the uh, cats and uh, other ferals that are on the island will also be eradicated one day. It has been shown that it can be done in other instances. So, hopefully, it does. It is successful and does continue into the future. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Minister for Primary Industries Claire Scriven. There, just uh, giving an update on the eradication of the final thirty pigs on Kangaroo Island. It will be quite an achievement when that does take place. Finally, today, South Australian farmers are going to uh, be able to have their hemp crops processed into products like building materials. Given there's a new facility in the Murraylands. Bavakyara is transforming the former Big W distribution centre for Big W in Monato into a hemp manufacturing facility as well as a site for research trials into using agave plants for biofuel. The company's general manager for operations, Adam Jikit, tells Eliza Berla she expects to open the facility later this year. Industrial hemp is a very versatile material. We're obviously partnering uh, with some farmers here in South Australia down in the southeast and they're, they're growing a sizable amount of uh, industrial hemp for us at this time and for us it's about uh, bringing it to the Monado Innovation Precinct, processing it there and then putting it into, into a range of products from, from building products to hempcrete type products to textiles and, and whatever else. When the facility opens what will be the capacity that it's able to process? Yeah, so initially, so initially with the, uh, the the hemp processing machine that we've procured, we'll be looking at approximately six to eight tonnes of processing capacity per day to start out, and and the plan is to scale that up sizably over the next in the next year or two. For other farmers that you're you're working with, what were some of the key concerns and and key things that they wanted to see with this facility? I guess one of the things we offer to farmers with bringing a new product or, or a new opportunity with industrial hemp. It obviously adds some versatility and opens a new market that Australian farmers can explore. You know, along with that, it, it has a lot of positive effects for the soil and the rotational crops. And ultimately what SA was missing was a processing hub. And, uh, you know, this is what we've brought to the state to give that opportunity to farmers to explore that. At this stage, are you able to talk about what sort of prices or, or returns that farmers involved with this facility would be getting on their crops? Yeah, look, with, with, in regard to the prices and what farmers are earning, it, 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 is, it is sensitive and commercial, I guess, in a, in a commercial way. We probably wouldn't go too much into the details of what that, but what we have, the feedback we have had for the farmers is that it is worthwhile and it is suitable for them to consider it in a rotational crop, and that's where a lot of the interest would come from. What's the interest been in, in purchasing and using the products that would be created at the facility? 
Yeah, look, we, we are getting uh, inquiries about pre-orders. There's a lot of people in the state already that are interested in using hemp as a, as a building material in the, in the, the hempcrete or in prefabricated building supplies. We're speaking with different people already across a range of projects. It's definitely something that we look to speak further with the government about and see if it is an opportunity for building supplies in the, the larger scale. You've got some agave trials going on there too, some research trials that you're working with the university on. What's that uh, partnership about? Yeah, so we're working with the Adelaide University to initially undertake some research and development in looking, trying to bring an agave market to Australia. We see it as a extremely versatile plant, much like hemp, where it can be used in everything from um, green hydrogen and bioenergy or biofuels through to distilling, medicines, fibre and, and even feedstock for animals. So it has a huge value chain. How big will the initial trial be? Yeah, so we have quite a bit of land at, at the Monado Innovation Precinct site. So we plan to look at utilising four to five hectares to get an initial trial or demonstration crop up and running. And again, that will be part of doing the research and looking into the genetics and which type of species grow best in our climate and looking to, to expand that further in, you know, into a variety of different climate zones we have in the state and uh, in states. And uh, how long will their trials go for? Look, we, we see the trials kicking off instantaneously. We've already commenced trials, but we see the, the trials and the research being an ongoing thing. So we would like to see plants, um, you know, obviously filling out plant stocks and, and being able to make it available to people that are interested in the plants and, uh, along the entire value chain. Uh, how many jobs is uh, this uh, all expected to create? Look, we've uh, we've done some projections into to look at how many jobs, but really, as it stands, uh, it it has a huge potential not only for farmers and uh, you know people surrounding Monado, but it, it it can create hundreds of jobs in along that entire value chain. We're talking from biofuels and bioenergy through to um, all the way to uh, just general farming, feedstock, fibre, and things like that. And and it's it's, it's something that can go national. Have you started the process of, of advertising to fill those jobs? I mean, that can be quite hard, uh, of course, getting people to fill the jobs at the moment and obviously finding accommodation. But, um, yeah, what's that all looking like at the moment? Yeah, uh, 2023 is shaping up to be a, a large recruitment year for Vicura. So we look, we'll certainly be actively recruiting and, you know, trying to bring people into the fold and a range of different jobs that we'll be advertising. Um, and, and that must be quite beneficial as well, Monado being uh, in the Murray lands and, and some of those communities nearby have been um, yeah, a bit affected by the floods. So, yeah, I'm sure those um, councils nearby must be uh, looking forward to some positive economic activity in the region after those floods as well. Absolutely. And it's one of the comments that we have had to speak with the council. It, it, it does add some versatility and diversity in some of the jobs that are available in the area. So not just being able to train people up in new skills, but also provide them jobs that have a long-term future. When's the facility expected to, to open and start operating? It's going to undertake a, a pretty reasonable redevelopment in, in getting it to a stage where we'll start to open it to the public and have people coming through. I would expect at this stage later this year to start to really get to, to create that hive of activity and having the people coming through. Uh, there are things operating at the moment. But yeah, still definitely in you know, that redevelopment and, and, and creating that new space. Vicura's Adam Deckett speaking with Eliza Burlage. Massive um, 
development there given, well, there is a lot of capacity to grow hemp in this state. There's not as many end uses for it. So uh, perhaps this will transform that. I guess we'll wait and see. That's it for me. But more to come this afternoon on your ABC Local Radio with Sonia Feldhoff. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. Yes, um, we're going to be talking about our Port River Dolphins today because a parliamentary inquiry has found we are not protecting them in the way that was intended under the Act with that sanctuary. So why aren't we? And um, we'll try and get some answers on that. Also today, the First Nations Commissioner will be joining me, Dale Ages, to answer all your basic detailed questions on The Voice, which is um, being introduced into State Parliament. What sort of questions um, can we... I'm still get very up? vague on this. Is what I we're really saying. don't know we'll what it means. We'll look at some of the practicalities and, of course, we'll look at more reaction to the decision to not go ahead with the Terramon Mine at Woodside. Keep listening to your ABC Local Radio. It's coming up to one o'clock. Time for news. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.